I'm Samantha Engel. And I'm Aaron Gullius, and this is Great Lakes Lore. So today, we're back in the creepy crime weirdness. I, I think weird. I think weird is, is a good adjective for this. We're, we're back in the, the creepy crime segment, aren't we? Yes, um, we are here with a story about a serial killer whose story has definitely left, you know, a, a lingering sort of legend or legacy in Indiana. So I think it fits right within what we are doing. We don't just cover a normal murder for the sake of covering true crime. No, this we is we want something is, good. Well, yeah, this is this is a weird interesting. murder, interesting and murder, eight. Impactful. Yeah, there, there's volume here. You know, it, it's not yeah. just like a killing or two. There's, you know, there's. Well, numbers. Rattle Run was just a killing, right? But there was mind control and mesmerism <laughs> potentially involved. This doesn't have that really, but it ties into a number of of historical trends and interesting things, which is which is always good. And it's it's in a county that borders Lake Michigan. That's right on Lake Michigan. Very great lakesy. Very great lakesy. I just always want to be careful we're not falling into like a uh, glorifying crime or something. Like we're looking at these stories for a purpose. So not just to get our get some cheap thrills, I suppose. <laughs> no, uh, no, I, I think we're we're definitely there's 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 interesting things about this from a number of perspectives beyond just the thrill of killing, you know. So. <laughs> Yes. There's always a point, though, when we do like one of the murder ones or like halfway through the story, I'm like, sh should we be doing this? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just like taking these people who lived real lives and suffered real things, be it issues that the person committing the crime had or, you know, like these poor families who lost a loved one or whatever. I think it's important to always remember them. So, yeah, Absolutely. But anyways, we're going to be talking about Belle Gunness. So Belle wasn't always known as Belle. Um, she was born Brunhilde Poldstadter Storset. Uh, and she was born on November 11th, 1859 in Selbu, Norway. Her father was a sharecropper who worked about an acre of land on the Storset farm along with his wife, Barrett, and six other children besides little Brunhilde. Uh, not much is known about her childhood. She was a bright student. Uh, her pastor said she performed very well in confirmation class. People she worked for said that she was diligent and hardworking. Of course, after her crimes became known, opinions varied a bit. There's always the people who are like, oh, yeah, she. I thought she was always <laughs> trouble. Um, one she was neighbor, a loner. Yeah. <laughs> right. I saw her kill a fly once. Uh, one neighbor said she liked to play dirty tricks and as a young adult was little respected and a scum of society. It's <laughs> <laughs> just a child, man. Uh, another story circulated that when she was 17, a local boy got her pregnant and then beat her so badly that she lost the baby. Uh, he died shortly thereafter from a stomach ailment that resembled arsenic poisoning, though. So keep that little tidbit in your minds. Uh, those later opinions appeared in the local paper in Selbu years after Belle's death and were cited in Janet Langlois' book, Belle Gunness, The Lady Bluebeard, published by Indiana University Press in 1985. So again, these stories are things that came out, you know, after the crime, you know, interviews later with people, that kind of thing. It was not like documented items at the time these things were committed. So when we talk about, you know, history, whether it be taking an oral history from somebody, conducting an interview or whatever, we always have to remember, you know, what failings in memory can occur and how later events can color a person's interpretation of something that happened in the past. So um, we want to make sure that we know when these when these items are being said. So then eventually Brunhild um, immigrates to America. In 1881, she comes to the United States. Her sister Olina, who is now going by Nellie, had arrived a few years earlier and was living in Chicago. She had married a man named John Larson. So Brunhild moves in with her sister Nellie Larson. 
Brunhild renames herself Bella Peterson. Uh, Bella is, of course, a much more easy name to blend <laughs> in with in the United States. She did domestic work, as many did, tasks like laundry, piecework sewing at home, and house cleaning. And through this, she was in the homes of very wealthy and impressive type folks. So Bella had ambitions. Later, her sister Nellie would say that Bella was insane on the subject of money. She would do anything to get it. She never seemed to care for a man for his own self, only for the money or luxury he was able to give her. So Belle wanted money. In March of 1884, she married a man that she hoped would be able to provide this. This was a, a fellow Norwegian-American named Mads Ditlev Anton Sorensen, which is about the most Norwegian name <laughs> you can think of. Uh, he was a night watchman at a Chicago department store. And while we don't know much about the early years of their marriage, it seems that Bella had a strong urge to care for children. We know that she taught Sunday school and made worked at, at, at charities that, that benefited orphanages and, and fundraisers. And she made clear that she wanted to raise orphan children. In fact, she repeatedly requested that her sister Nellie give her her four-year-old daughter Olga to raise. Nellie refused, and the two sisters were estranged as a result. So she was hassling her sister to say, Well, let me let me take my niece and let me raise her. Let me let us have her. Um, which is <laughs> that's a which weird. Is very strange. Isn't <laughs> I wouldn't it? do that to my sister. No. <laughs> So in 1891, Bella got her wish for a child in a way. They were friends with a couple, Anton Olson and his wife. The wife got sick and later died. And, and while she, this woman was dying, Bella pledged to care for their young daughter, Jenny, who was just a baby at the time. I think she was eight months old or something. So Bella and Mads take Jenny into their home. And then later, Anton tries to get custody of Jenny back. And Bella fights him in court. And um, the father loses custody of Jenny. And um, she stays with Bella. So the Sorensons had mixed luck with their business and finances. They, they bought a candy store, which wasn't very profitable. And one day when Mads was away, the store caught fire and mostly burned. Uh, the um, Sorensons were able to collect the insurance money, despite the fact that Bella's story of how the fire started didn't really match the evidence. And they moved to the Chicago suburbs. And over the next few years, the Sorensons acquired four more children, all between 1896 and 1898. And I say acquired because we don't know if Bella like bore these children or if they were abandoned or orphaned children. It's, it's very unclear. Two of the children died as infants, one of an inflamed bowel and another of hydrocephaly. Later, the couple was scammed out of their money in a mining investment. But fortunately, and, and fortunately is kind of sarcastic. They experienced a house fire right around the same time and received an insurance payout. Now, speaking of insurance, this may be a little confusing, so I'll try to keep it simple. Mads had a life insurance policy of $2,000. It was set to expire on July 30th, 1900. Now, he made the choice to allow that policy to lapse and he took out another life insurance policy for $3,000 that would take effect beginning July 30th, 1900. On July 30th, 1900, Mads came home with a bad headache. Bella says she gave him some quinine powder. And later that day, he was dead. Doctors suspected that she may have accidentally given him morphine instead of quinine. They said maybe it was a mistake by the pharmacy. But they couldn't check because she'd thrown out the packaging. Doctors declared that Mads had probably died of a cerebral hemorrhage. And astoundingly, shockingly, I mean, what are the odds? Mads died on the one day when both his $2,000 insurance policy and his new $3,000 insurance policy were both in effect. And Bella received $5,000. She was able to get both of those policies. That's about $150,000 in today's dollars. So following Mads's death, Bella moved to a farm in Laporte, Indiana. The estate had a bit of a reputation, having been a bordello at one point. And Laporte is not too far away from the shores of Lake Michigan in northwest Indiana, just so you can get yourself sort of geographically situated there. And it was upon moving to Laporte that Bella renamed herself slightly, becoming Belle Sorensen. 
And now we get to husband number two, Peter Gunnis. Gunnis had actually been a former boarder of the Sorensons who had moved to Minneapolis, had married, and subsequently been widowed when his wife died in childbirth. Bell got reacquainted with Gunnis while visiting family in Minneapolis, and Gunnis followed her back to Indiana, and they married in 1902. Five days after the wedding, Gunnis's baby daughter died from edema of the lungs. Harold Schechter, in his book, Hell's Princess, The Mystery of Belle Gunnis, Butcher of Men. Well, that's not a gendered title at all, is it? Jesus. It's sort of, it's sort of a spoiler, too, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> yeah. Gosh. He quotes newspaper reports from 1908 describing her appearance. She was supposedly a fat, heavy-featured woman with a big head covered with a mop of mud-colored hair, small eyes, huge hands and arms, and a gross body supported by feet grotesquely small. Now, I want to say I saw pictures of her and did not think that she was some kind of hideous woman, especially when she was younger. I mean, she just looked like a... She looked like a lady, for God's sake. She she, she looked like a woman from... 1908 might look, or the the early 20th century might look like a farm woman, farm woman, stocky, yeah, you know, ancestry. (laughs) Yeah, she she's just a northern European. She's not a Mediterranean waif, you know. I mean, no, and that's one thing. I'm just going to say this right here since we're talking about it. I feel like in telling the story of Belle, that a lot of people, knowing how things turn out, really read into a lot of. A lot of things. So it's like, let's describe her as ugly or highlight that, you know, I mean, I'm not trying to stand up for her at all, but there are just some issues with reporting female crimes here. (laughs) Yeah. And and, and to be fair, like, like this is a newspaper report from after, you know, after everything's over. Oh, uh, yes. Um, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I read that wrong. So, so so of course, it's taking, but you're right. It's taking that into that into account. I mean, because conversely, Peter Gunnis was described as a fine-looking Viking of a man. I, I guess. <laughs> I, I, I did, did, did he not bathe and, and and was he smelly and carried an axe? I'm not sure what a, you know, a, did he have a hat with horns on it? Well, I'm thinking, oh, crap, what's the family? Um, the actor family. Why can't I remember their names? Um, the Skarsgårds. <laughs> oh, Skarsgård, right. Yes. Right, right. I could not remember their name for the life of me. But, I mean... Sure. The Scars Guards are good looking Viking men, right? Especially the one who was in True Blood and the Northmen. But whatever. I don't know. So Schechter speculates, that's if we've forgotten because I've gone off on this ranty tangent, um, Schechter, the author of the book, speculates that one of the attractive things about Belle to the younger man was the 48-acre farm she owned. Of course, just one of her land. But we also see here the emphasis on physical appearance that would be part of reporting about Belle during this entire saga. So then in December of 1902, less than a year after the wedding, the Gunnis' neighbors were woken up in the middle of the night by Jenny Gunnis. Her papa, she said, had burned himself. The neighbor, Swan Nicholson, rushed to the Gunnis' house. Peter Gunnis was face down on the floor, blood pooled around his head. He was dead. Bell explained that a meat grinder had fallen from a high shelf, hitting hitting him on the head. And in the chaos, a bowl of boiling brine had flipped over and burned him. <laughs> that feels like one of those. Um, what are the uh, odds? The, the, the Rube, uh, Rube the, Goldberg. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. One of those machines. I was trying to say Gold Rubeberg. Like I had it backwards <laughs> in my head for some reason. I was hiking today. My mind is kind of mushy. So despite this, he told Belle he was okay. A few hours later, she found him on the floor of the parlor dead. There was an autopsy and an inquest into Peter's death. There were several questions whether or not the sausage grinder would actually kill a man, for example. The coroner, Dr. Bowell, uh, unfortunate name. It's a great (laughs) name for a coroner, isn't it? I mean, (laughs) was pretty detailed in his questioning of both Belle and Jenny. While their stories matched, it was clear that Bowell had some suspicions. He asked if Belle would collect life insurance from the death and then asked little 13-year-old Jenny if she knew where her mother got the money to buy the farm in Laporte. Despite his suspicions, Dr. Bowell was compelled to report that Gunnis's death was an accident caused by a skull fracture. Rumors, however, then filled the town that Gunnis had been the victim of foul play, probably at Bell's hands. So here she starts getting the reputation. And there were mysterious goings-on at the farm. A few months after she was widowed, a baby boy became part of the household. 
Belle said it was hers, but no one knew she was pregnant. And she was up and doing farm work just a day after the supposed birth. And this is very strange. Like a neighbor shows up and there's a baby. It's like, where'd this baby come from? And Belle's like, well, I had him yesterday. And she's like, oh, why are you up around? Oh, this is how we are in the old country. We're tough. Not like people here. It's like, it's just weird. So the neighbors are are confused about where these babies come from. So Peter's brother had come to Laporte from Minnesota. He was suspicious about the death and concerned for one of his nieces who lived with Belle. There was an older the baby died, remember, but there was an older child who still live, still lived with them. Uh, he found no answers and, and went back home. And as the years went on, people would notice a large number of farmhands coming and going at Belle Gunnis's place. And and this is not an exhaustive list, but just to give you an idea. In 1904, Olaf Lindbo, who had come to the U.S. from Norway a few years before, arrived in Laporte with all of his possessions and his $600 in life savings after answering a help wanted ad in a Norwegian language newspaper. He and his employer, Bell, became very close with word spreading that they were engaged. A few months later, Olaf was gone with no warning. Bell told people a few different stories about what had happened to him. Olaf had, depending on who she was talking to, gone to St. Louis to see the World's Fair. Or Olaf had gone home to see the new King of Norway crowned. Or Olaf had gone west to set up a homestead. One of those three, apparently. I, I like the going home to see the new King of Norway crowned, especially. Lots of lots of immigrants to the United States would go home for to random, see their monarchs. <laughs> random political events, right? In April 1905, a new farmhand shows up named Henry Gertholt. In August of 1905, he is gone. He leaves with Belle explaining to her neighbor, Chris Christofferson, not that Chris Christofferson. <laughs> this is spelled with CHs. <laughs> yes, yes. That he had left in the middle of harvest. He was sick, she said, and couldn't do the work. What, what do you do when you're sick and can't do the farm work? You just go to Chicago, leaving all of your clothes and possessions mm-hmm. behind. So at this point, getting into late 1905, Belle began placing more ads in various Norwegian language papers around the country. Here's one example. Wanted, a woman who owns a beautifully located and valuable farm in first-class condition, wants a good and reliable man as partner in same. Some little cash is required. (laughs) (laughs) Just bring a little money. The postmaster reported that Belle received several letters every day, although we can't know how many responses she ended up getting. The ad was effective, however. Attracting, and again, this is just... A few of those men, George Berry of Tuscola, Illinois, moved to Laporte with his life savings of $1,500. Christian Hilkvin of Dover, Wisconsin, told his friends goodbye, sold his farm for $2,000, and had his mail forwarded to Laporte. An Osage, Kansas bachelor named Emil Tell quit his job and told his supervisor that he was going to go marry a rich widow. Widower Ole Budsberg of Wisconsin sold his farm to his sons and told them he was going to Laporte to get married. And John Moe of Minnesota withdrew $1,000 from the bank and told the teller he needed the money to go to Laporte. So that is five, five men that we know of. None of the men stayed long, but no one living in the area ever saw them leave. One of her local farmhands, Emil Greening, noted that he thought it was odd that all of these men left so soon. Belle described them as her cousins. <laughs> <laughs> and and it was also odd that they left all of their stuff behind. They would show up with all of their belongings, and then she would just say they were gone. They were cousins. They were visiting with all of their stuff. One room in the house, he said, contained about 15 trunks and one room was packed full of all kinds of men's clothing. Mrs. Gunnis said that the cousins had left their clothes and she wasn't certain that they'd be back for them. In the summer of 1906, then, Belle hired a local man to dig some garbage pits, as she called them, (laughs) in her hog pen. She wanted them to be exactly six feet long, three feet wide, and four feet deep. Hmm. In the fall of 1906, Jenny, then 16, had a number of male admirers. She was, of course, of that age, including that farmhand, Emil Greening, and John Weedner, who worked a local carriage shop. 
Ginny told the two men that Belle was sending her to college in California and that one of the professors was coming out to escort her back west. Jenny said she talked to the men before she left, but she didn't. She left, Bell told Weedner, a day earlier than she was meant to. His letters to her received no replies. So now, in addition to all of these men, Jenny is also mysteriously gone. Jenny, the girl she fought so hard to keep herself. Then in 1907, Ray Lampier began working for Bell, and the two were often seen together in town. So he's going to be an important player, so keep him in mind. Uh, but Bell had set her sights on a farmer from South Dakota named Andrew Helgelian. Bell had been exchanging letters with Helgelian beginning in 1906, and, and unlike most of these other guys, he needed some persuading. And he was kind of a tough customer. He'd, he'd done time in prison for robbing a post office and then burning down the post office to cover up the fact that he had robbed it, which seems like <laughs> seems a little excessive. For whatever reason, he needed more incentive to move to Indiana. The letters from Bell to Andrew illustrate this, this buttering up. Uh, one letter says, dear friend, from Bell to Andrew, dear friend. You impress me with being a good man with strong and honest character, a real genuine Norwegian in every respect, and it is difficult to find such a man and not every woman appreciates. There are plenty of these American dudes around here, but I would not even look at them, no matter how often they asked me. He was the man she wanted the most out of over a hundred of what she called applicants, and she implored him to take all your money out of the bank and come as soon as possible. Despite numerous letters back and forth, it would be 1908 before Hegelian moves to Laporte. And when he gets to town, Bell takes him almost immediately to the local bank, where he cashes in with her prompting about $3,000 worth of certificates of deposit. And uh, according to one account, the the banker actually asks Hegelian, oh, what, what do you need this money for? And Bell says, it's none of your business. She sort of jumps <laughs> in like, basically tells the bank teller to shut up. It takes a few days for the money to clear, and the couple picks up the cash on January 14th, 1908. That's the last day Andrew Hegelian was seen alive. And it was at this point that Belle and her farmhand, Ray Lamphere, have a falling out. He no longer works for her. Did he quit? Was he fired? No one agreed. And things get much stranger, as we'll see after the break. If you enjoy what we do here on Great Lakes Lore, you can check out our Patreon page. Um, it is a um, Patreon account for both Great Lakes Lore and Aaron's other podcast, The Saucer Life. And there you can find um, blog posts detailing our research, early access to episodes, and a monthly bonus episode. We have things divided into two different tiers, so you can choose whichever tier best suits your interests, financial situation, whatever it is that you may need. But if you uh, feel the need to support or just want more of us in your life, we greatly would appreciate um, anything you could uh, support us with at Patreon. And you can also follow us at uh, Great Lakes Lore on Twitter and Instagram and, and Great Lakes Lore Podcast on uh, on Facebook. You can go to our website at greatlakeslore.com and, and find past episodes and notes and links to things and further reading and pictures based on the episodes and all sorts of information like that. So if you'd like to connect with us in those ways, that would be outstanding and we'd love to hear from you. So Aaron, what have you been watching lately? A friend of mine at work has been bugging me to watch a show called The Orville for a while. And I, I started watching it back when it started in 2017 and i hadn't but i'm a huge star trek fan and, and my friend's a huge star trek fan he told me that if you like star trek especially like star trek the next generation you'll love this and so i watched it and i got into it and i've been binging the whole thing and it's it's from seth mcfarlane who's the guy behind family guy yeah and um it's a just live action it's science fiction it's a ship it's basically like star trek but like old star trek from back mm -hmm. when i was a kid and it's it's funny it's a comedy it's a drama with very comedic elements and it's got really good characterization 
and it's really sweet and it's really nice and the relationships in the show are great and my wife has even been watching it and she's like she'll like i'll be watching it and she'll like just get sucked into an episode and then just like watch the next one i also watched the first episode of the new lord of the rings series Mm. i fell asleep oh yeah i like the lord of the rings i love the movies i like the books i even read the silmarillion i'm that much of a nerd that i've read the silmarillion this was 66 minutes and nothing happened I I don't know. I go ahead and lambaste me, uh, Lord of the Rings fans, but I don't know if I'm going to be able to stick with it. It's I wasn't that tough. taken by the trailer. I have to confess, and mm-hmm. um, I have not read Lord of the Rings, but I have watched all of the Lord of the Rings movies and the Hobbit movies and and everything, and um, I enjoyed it all. And so I, fit, if anything, I thought like. Maybe this would be something book people wouldn't enjoy, but as a visual Lord of the Rings fan, uh, like maybe maybe that it, maybe I would like it. Um, but then as I watched the trailers, I was like, nah, I'm not being sucked into this. So I have not I th- given it a go yet. I, I think for me, it's like the thing about the Lord of the Rings, the, the movies, you, you had these characters, right? Right. You, you had Aragorn and, 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 and Boromir and you got the hobbits and you got Gandalf and you've got Gimli and uh, Legolas. You got all these, these characters. And even if you didn't read the books first and I didn't, I watched the movies and then read the books. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you've, you've got these, these, these characters to latch onto. And in, in this one, you've got young Galadriel and young, Elrond. Elrond. Oh, it's him? Oh, yeah, I didn't it, know that it, it was Elrond. It, it's okay. young Elrond. Hugo and Weaving. But that's the thing, too. Like, the actors made it for it's me. Not so, the, like, yeah, it's, like, not it, even Hugo Weaving. <laughs> it's not Hugo Weaving, weaving and Kate Blanchett. It's it, right. it's two very capable actors sure. who, who are what they would have looked like a thousand years ago. But mm-hmm. there's there's no there, there, there's no hook for me. And, and, and maybe there will. And I, it's a TV show, not a movie, right? So... I've got to stick with it for four hours before I decide whether or not to give up on it. Right. But, um, I'll, I'll probably at least give the second episode a go, but Mm -hmm. you've been watching anything lately. Um, so I very great lakes at Laura appropriate watched the first four episodes at this point of the devil in Ohio on Netflix. And it is really good. Um, it has, uh, whichever day Chanel was not Zoe. Um, I Emily, forget her name. Emily yes. from Bones. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes, yes, from Bones. And it's it's odd. I mean, she was an adult in Bones, but she's like, it's weird sort of, it's almost like a disjointed thing having known her as Bones and now seeing her in this, which is like a very, very capable in a way, not that Bones wasn't capable, but like she was kind of in her own head a lot, not yeah. always aware of yeah. everything that was around her. And she's a beautiful, powerful lady and she's, you know, raising beautiful daughters, amazing daughters and, you know, married and, uh, you know, there, there's just, I like it. I like it a lot. And the show is developing really well and, um, uh, has some creepiness. I think it's more, uh, more suspenseful than it's definitely not scary at this point. It's unsettling. I I would say, okay. um, but it's, you know, about a cult and, um, as the one girl has these flashbacks, it's, it's good. You should check it out. <laughs> I, I watched the preview. Oh, we were watching, um, the documentary about Woodstock 99, uh, this weekend. And after it was done, the preview for the Ohio show, came up mm. and it looks really really uh interesting and i, li- mm-hmm. I like i like emily deschanel um I, yeah. I liked her in bones but yeah she does seem just admittedly i just watched the preview she does seem like a very different sort of character mm-hmm. which, which is um which i mean which makes sense she's an actress right so she can, but, <laughs> right but she is see, not you, bones <laughs> but she was like in nine seasons of that or whatever and i don't think i've ever seen her in anything else so right. that's that's just my my image right. of her that I uh, speaking that of I images of people last night we watched the lost city which was the um the Sandra Bullock movie where she oh, was the yeah. romance um writer and I always forget that guy's name because I want to call him Michael Cena and he's not Michael Cena and the guy from Magic Mike I can't remember what his name is the actor um I I I know the one you're thinking of um 
My wife is a huge Magic Mike Channing fan. Channing Tatum. Yes, Channing Tatum. Yes. Oh, I yes. I always yeah. <laughs> just get him yep. confused. Channing Tatum. Um, I'm not a. I'm not into Shannon Tatum, to be frank, but um, he was he was super funny and like he was a really good actor. Like, I mean, I I've honestly don't know that I've ever seen him in anything. So I didn't know that he <laughs> could be a good actor. I thought he was just the pretty boy. Right. right. Um, and but no, I mean, he kind of played this dopey character. Um, but Daniel Radcliffe plays like the evil guy <laughs> and he will just always be <laughs> Harry Potter. Like right. I cannot not see Harry Potter. And I think part of it is, is because he's a little on the short side. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. he still looks like a teenager. But like then you get close and his face clearly isn't a teenager. I don't know. It's just weird. It's like you're probably my age. But um, yeah, um, Daniel Radcliffe. I'm sorry, but you're always Harry Potter. Well, it's it's good to hear an opinion about Lost City because I've thought about watching it, but it it's always so funny. It I mean, it's kind not... of. I was like, oh, this could either be really, really good and funny, or it could be awful. Uh, it's funny. You know, okay. I mean, Sandra Bullock is like always funny. That's and that's I'm not true. at all a rom com type person at all. Um, but I thought I would give this one a shot, and yeah, it was it was it was quite entertaining. Lots of laughy moments. So good. Yeah. Good. I think it's time to, I don't know, murder some people. <laughs> sure. <laughs> All right. Let's, uh, let's go do that. So on April 28th, 1908, the Gunnis farmhouse is burning. It is on fire. Uh, the local fire brigades and neighbors rushed to help the fire burned so hot that there was nothing that could be done. As the house burned and smoldered, a crowd of onlookers gathered that would soon number in the hundreds, including reporters from several papers. Once things cooled off enough for people to investigate, the bodies of Belle and her three children were found. The newspaper reports were pretty graphic and sensational in their reporting. Belle's body was described as an unrecognizable mass with the bones protruding through the naked flesh. Her head, interestingly, was not attached to the body and, quote, the diggers in the ruins have yet to find the skull. The one Gunnis family child not present at the horrible scene was Jenny, who, if you recall from before the break, had gone to college early. (laughs) Um, But (laughs) newspapers said that she was expected to arrive soon. On May 2nd now, Azel Helgalian, the brother of Andrew Hegelian arrives in Laporte. So this is all happening, you know, just just within a week of the house catching on fire. He shows up because he is concerned about his brother, Andrew. And since he was concerned about his brother, Asel himself wrote to Belle and she told him that Andrew had left for Norway. Odd. (laughs) But (laughs) Asel did not believe her, which is why he decided to come to Laporte himself. He asked the sheriff if he could dig around on the farm. The farmhand, Joe Maxson, then gave him some points as to where to look. Like, hey, why don't you go dig over there? (laughs) Um, And so on May 5th, three days after he arrived in Laporte, Asel discovered Andrew Hegelian's body. Can I just say how strange it is that just from a things were different back then point of view that that somebody who says they're <laughs> the brother of somebody who's missing just asked the sheriff for permission to start digging around a crime scene and the sheriff's <laughs> like oh, i don't care that's fine <laughs> maybe if that maybe if anything he thought like ah maybe he'll turn something up that'll be useful in this i don't have the men to send on this my, task. my deputies my deputies are busy we don't have time <laughs> right. to just dig up a farm we're but concerned it, it, it with just, the house and these bodies like if he wants to go right. dig in the pig pen go for it <laughs> So, so the location where the bodies were discovered was under one of the pig pens. If you remember, that was where Bell had instructed some some garbage pits to be dug that just happened <laughs> to be six feet long. Um, and as the investigation of the fire continued, more grisly discoveries occurred. There were more bodies. They continued digging um, under that pig pen and digging all over the place then. And there were lots of bodies, at least 11. They were horribly dismembered and mutilated. And among the bodies was one of the young Jenny, who, surprise, surprise, had not left for college early without a word to anybody that she knew. Oh, poor Jenny. Poor Jenny. Um, 
and and the description of her was was just the way they were able to identify her was her blonde ponytail was still attached to the skull um all the flesh was burned away but there was like the blonde hair still on the skull which is just awful um Mm -hmm. well and you know when you think about that too i mean not that on tv they show like things in that much of a detail but since they're isn't television you know like they're painting right. this picture so like that makes i mean newspapers are entertained I, I never had thought about that before i was just thinking of it now like huh well and obviously with how many people were showing up to to watch the fire and as you'll hear more people show up for other things right um that you know people are morbidly curious and they so are. they could sell lots of papers if they had lots of nasty descriptions at a time when you couldn't see things you know necessarily with your own eyes I think sometimes we, we think that sometimes some not we 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 know better, but I think sometimes people think that well back in the old days there wasn't this kind of sensationalist you know news reporting and it was just facts in the newspaper and it wasn't like it is today. Oh no, it was in some ways much worse. Oh yeah, today. I always like to say, and I used to do this with my um, English students when you're talking about like creating arguments and papers and stuff, um, but uh, like you know old election stuff especially like the the um election of 1800 and oh, how they yeah. said like jefferson ate babies <laughs> it's like, it like an atheist who ate babies like they printed that so um yeah <laughs> and, and he only ever ate one baby and it just got blown so out of proportion <laughs> that virginia man they're, they're crazy down there that, that just in case you didn't know that didn't happen <laughs> no baby eating no cannibalism After all this happens, questions begin to arise regarding the identity of the adult body found in the ruins of the fire that was missing a head. This made it impossible to compare dental records. Now, it was was assumed to be Bell's initially, but the body was smaller than Bell's. According to an article posted on the LaPorte Indiana Library's website, the body that was found was about five foot three and weighed 75 pounds. Which that's tiny. That is tiny. I don't know how they would have – I mean, maybe that's just like the bones that were left weighed 75. I, was I don't know that. how you could get to that. Um, and they didn't have specific citations, I will say. But I thought like that is I, – I mean, because that's shorter than me by a smidge, <laughs> like an inch <laughs> and a half. But seven that, – that's not really – that's not possible. Right. And, I mean, and Bell, health, yeah. healthily possible. That's right. like bedridden I- – my bones can't right. support me, kind of. And, I don't and know. Every, How do you every, have muscles? Yeah, every account, you know, tells us that Bell was was more sizable, five nine, and weighed over two hundred pounds. That's a significant size difference. So, in an attempt to find the head or teeth or anything to go by, Sheriff Smutzer of Laporte County decides to sift through all the debris and even hires a local miner to build a, a, a sluice box to sort of like wash things through and, and, and find all the material. And on May 19th, they find some dental bridge work, which Bell's dentist identified as work he had done for her. The piece had two human teeth with porcelain teeth and gold crown work, and thus the body was identified as Bell's. Now, at the same time this is going on, Bell's former hired hand, Ray Lamphere, was charged with the crime, murder, and the arson, and he pleaded not guilty. Now, Bell had expressed some concerns over Ray. He had, she said, been madly in love with her and began making scenes around the farm. Bell asked the court to hold a sanity hearing because she claimed he wasn't well, And although he passed the hearing a few days later, he was arrested for trespassing on the farm. He continued to make threats about not leaving the farm and and Bell alone. And she mentioned to her lawyer just one day before the fire that she was worried he would kill her and her family. Interestingly, she was seeing her attorney to draw up her will. She was... Writing a good case, I feel. <laughs> yes, she was laying some decent groundwork yes. for everything that was to come. Mm-hmm. So the trial begins in November of 1908, and Lamphere's defense claims that the body was not that of Bell's. They brought in a jeweler who claimed that a fire hot enough to do the damage it had done to the house would have done more damage to the bridge work that was found in the fire. 
the implication of this would have been that the piece, that the, the dental piece, the bridgework piece, was thrown into the debris after the fact to serve as proof that Bella died. And in fact, she had skipped town, not died in the fire. In order to prove this, two local doctors produced a jawbone with similar bridgework and threw it into a fire hot enough where the bone would crumble. The teeth also crumbled. The porcelain was the teeth also crumbled, the porcelain was pitted, and the gold was somewhat melted. So basically, what the defense was saying was that any fire hot enough to do what the fire had done to the house, and according to news reports, it was burned out, there were just some brick walls remaining. Any fire hot enough to do that, you would not have found a piece of intact bridge work with teeth and porcelain false teeth and gold fillings intact enough that a dentist could recognize it definitively as work he had done for a specific person. That simply would not be possible given the physics of what had gone on. No, and the experiment they conducted really proved that very well, I think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and we recall maybe from our episode about the Rattle Run murders that um that, you know, fire hot enough to to melt bones, it's difficult to identify anything mm-hmm. um, after after that. So that seemed pretty convincing. And the defense also called Bell's current hired hand, Joe Maxson, and he said that he saw Klondike Schultz, which is the best name ever. Klondike best Schultz. Nickna- it is a nickname, but that's the best nickname for a minor. It is. How, how do you, if I was a minor, I would beg them to call me Klondike. I want to be sourdough, sourdough Sam. Sourdough Sam? Yep. And so you shall be Thank from you. now on. I had I did not have the computer game like Oregon Trail at home on my PC, but I had the Yukon Trail. I remember so Yukon I, Trail vaguely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I was all about heading up to Alaska to find me some gold. I would have demanded they call me Klondike even if I'd never been to Alaska. <laughs> so Joe Maxson said that he saw Klondike Schultz, the miner who had built the sluice, pulled the bridge work out of his pocket and claimed he had found it, basically planting it at the scene. And this claim was corroborated by another witness. The defense was successful. Ish. Ray was acquitted of the murder charges. He was, however, found guilty of arson on November 26, 1908, sentenced between two and 21 years in the state prison in Michigan City. He would die of tuberculosis about a year later, in December of 1909, and he gave an interesting deathbed testimony. He insisted that Bell wasn't dead and that he helped her get away and drove her to Stillwell, a nearby town. He then returned to the farm and set the house on fire. Lamphere explained that he helped Bell dispose of the bodies of those that she killed, including her children and the housekeeper whose bodies were in the fire ruins, but he never killed any of them. He also claimed that there were other accomplices, but did not say who. Which is convincing. Deathbed testimony is compelling. Well, yeah, because it's not like he was trying. I mean, he's got he's he's in prison, right? And he's dying, so like he has nothing to gain from. Right, and and even if he were to say, "Okay, I did it," there isn't much more they could have done to him either right. way. Right. Maybe as he stared down the great beyond. He was like, I should have never helped that bell. I should have seen. I should have seen what was going on. And so I'm going to tell people she's alive because everybody needs to go find her. Yep. Yep. Because she's still out there and she's probably still doing this sort of thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. All right. So if Belle wasn't in the fire, then where was she? Throughout the next couple of decades, there are many claims that arise that from from folks who think they have seen Belle, because of course the story becomes national news, and so ev- people everywhere will say, "Oh, someone saw her getting on a train. Oh, someone's been arrested for this. Maybe it's her." And so repeatedly there would be these little claims. Um, for instance, in 1930, there was a tip that led some to believe that Belle was living in Mississippi. A July article in the Miami News, Miami and Florida um, News, explained <laughs> that a sheriff had been tipped off by someone who had worked on Gunnis's farm and was now in Mississippi. And as he's now in Mississippi, he sees somebody who he believes is Belle. Authorities there began looking into it, and they con- contacted um, the authorities in Laporte to see, so Belle, who is she? Is she wanted? Like, w- what would you want us to do? 
And the folks in Laporte get a little overexcited. They run with the story. Ah, Belle's been found in Mississippi. And the uh, folks in Mississippi go to find this woman. And she's not at that house anymore. She had traveled out of state. So, I mean, could have been her, I suppose. (laughs) She could have realized, like, crap, I saw someone who used to know me. I need to skip town. Um, And the best part about this newspaper article was that they called Gunnis's home a matrimonial murder farm. That's great. I just thought was a very exciting title. So the best of these stories, the most convincing one that folks today still sort of cling to, um, came in 1931. A woman going by the name of Esther Carlson was arrested in Los Angeles, California, for the murder of a man that she was caring for named August Lindstrom. It was thought that Esther had murdered Lindstrom for his $2,000 bank account And she ends up dying in prison before her trial and before her identity could be proven. Two former Laportians, though, came, uh, went out to Los Angeles. Uh, They viewed the body in the morgue and they supposedly came away convinced that the body was that of Belle. And so that sort of being the last time that one of these lookalikes, they're the most famous time, and somebody doing like the same thing um, had cropped up. Sort of was was one that really stuck with people, and um, it's it's often what you see when you quick Google it. It's like ah, she she became this person. Of course, it hasn't been proven, but that's where a lot of folks look to. In 2008, there was an attempt to use DNA to identify, well, to identify the body, to see if the body that was buried that had been found in the fire was that of Bell. A team of anthropologists went to the Forest Park Cemetery in Chicago where that headless body had been buried, and they first intended to use a lock of hair that she had sent to one of her male correspondents to match it with the DNA from that corpse, and um, that was inconclusive. The hair was too old. They then eventually found a direct descendant of Belle's grandmother, and they thought maybe they could use that DNA to match it to the corpse, but the results were inconclusive. So to this day, there has not been any successful DNA testing to identify, well, to confirm whether or not the corpse that was found headless in the farmhouse was actually that of Belle's or not. And so I think one of the things that this tale lends to, and just the fact that we're talking about it today lends to, is sort of this idea of morbid fascinations. And this began as as soon as things started happening at the farm. Of course, you already heard that tons of onlookers showed up at the farm when the fire happened. And I can tell you, having worked in a building that caught fire Everybody and their brother shows up outside to watch it burn. And you're like, please leave me alone right now and go away because this is rather traumatizing. But um, people showed up then to start watching the fire. But as the bodies began being found on the property, the gawkers really began showing up. Mm -hmm. Men, women and children turned out to see what was being found on the Gunnis farm. According to an article on the Indie Stars website, railroads began running special excursions to the property. Refreshments were served up at stands along the road um, because people, they're always going to try to make a buck, right? Mm -hmm. One stand even sold Gunnis stew, which just sounds icky. Like, (laughs) in the context of what's going, and a stew being pieces of stuff. People. gross. Yeah. Yeah. So the gawkers were even seeking out keepsakes taken from the site. According to an article from the Chicago Inner Ocean newspaper, one woman had, quote, the skirt of her beautiful dress lifted up in which she carried about part of the carcass of a dead dog supposed to have been killed by Mrs. Gunnis while she was experimenting with poisons to use on her victims. Why would you do that? Also, like, the state that that dog would have had to have been in. No, and it's it, part of the carcass, not, not yeah. even like a dead dog. But like, yeah. like I've got a chunk of a dead dog. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I can see like the things other the other things people were taking. Like, oh, it's a shoe, or it's this, or it's that. Um, but part of a dog that, that just seems. I'm not sure what you're going to do with it. I'm not sure what you should do with any of it. I cannot no, understand. That's, that's true. I, ugh, ugh. Um, boy, remember that time we went to that murder scene? It was great, wasn't it? It was kids? awesome, yeah. Wow. Let's put the shoe up on the mantle. That's <laughs> <laughs> right next to Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> A 
According to the Laporte Weekly Herald, young men were selling souvenir postcards with photos of the victims. The one showing Andrew Helgelian's dismembered body sold out very quickly, but others which showed the skulls of various other victims were popular as well. As many as 15,000 people showed up on the biggest day, May 10th, 1908, and some sources even reported that day to having up to 20,000 visitors. So that's a lot, a lot of people. That is mind boggling. Mm-hmm. And even today, the farm is said to be haunted and brings out folks looking to interact with the other side. The property now has many houses on it, but uh, some in the area still know uh, through public memory where the farmhouse once sat. It's not that terribly long ago. So, you know, you can still like look at a plat map and see where the property would have been, right? Well, that's what these folks could have done, but instead they just asked the lo- they just asked the locals and they're like, "Oh yeah, my grandpa. The old, old Gunnis place." Yes. Yeah, um, <laughs> in a post about the Bell Gunness Farm on the website Yesterday's America, which has a copyright from Arcadia Publishing. The unknown author travels to Laporte and interviews one older gentleman in his 90s who says that he had an uncle who worked as her handyman for a time. He described her as determined and warm, but something about her always made him uneasy. He said that she had a crazy temper that could go off without a warning. The old man lived close to the property and said that in the night he would hear screams and he saw orbs in his backyard. When asked, he said he didn't think the property was haunted, but knew it was. Another woman was rather annoyed by the writer's questions and blew her off. But as she did, she also mentioned seeing balls of light. Finally, this article goes on to mention that the local police had been called at different times by neighbors thinking an unoccupied house was being vandalized or looted due to noise coming from it. But nobody was ever there, and everything was in order. Other websites with less story and more scare factor claim that Bell's ghost can be seen wandering around the property and even showing up in two buildings in Laporte. So the other thing that this story really gets at is this idea with female serial killers, because I think they're sort of, we don't hear about too many of them. And so it's almost as though people try to, there needs to be some other explanation or something. I don't know. I've had a lot of, I will just admit that I've had a lot of trouble, like looking at the story and being like, yes, we should treat female serial killers differently. But then when you look, there are some differences, but also I'm having some lady problems <laughs> with, with all of this. Um, so people often like to treat female serial female killers, particularly serial killers, with extra attention. And I think that might be it. Like, I, let's look at them more or let's talk about them more. I, I don't know. Like, they're a killer just like any man is a killer. Like, whatever. I don't know struggling. (laughs) Women are supposed to be more caring, nurturing, ruled by a greater moral sense, and so they shouldn't be killers, let alone kill multiple times. According to a 2006 article in Criminal Behavior and Mental Health, most female serial killers kill for material gain or something similar, which would fit in line with the idea that Belle was obsessed with gaining more money. Uh, Her crimes potentially began without murder with some of those arsons, or not Mm -hmm. arsons, but those buildings burning down very conveniently. Um, But then she found ways to continue to gain more money. Furthermore, childhood trauma and troubling experiences in their youth generally contribute to females turning to murder. Rarely do women simply kill for the pleasure or release in the act like psychiatrists find in male serial killers. And as I was reading all of this and writing it, I felt like I was suddenly a script writer for Criminal Minds or something. <laughs> Uh, Finally, women tend to know their victims, often as partners, and they often work with a man to commit their crimes, which I Mm. thought that was interesting. Um, All of these pieces could definitely fit in line with Belle's situation. When the bodies were found at Bell's farm, famed Italian criminal anthropologist Cesare Lombroso weighed in on the case. Lombroso, often referred to as the father of criminology at the time, conducted groundbreaking work by studying criminal behavior in a scientific way. He was the first to to do this. Um, He was a phrenologist, and many of his theories were very deterministic, 
Uh, he looked at different physical features and said that there were distinct features that all criminals shared. These criminal impulses could also be inherited. So if your mom's a criminal, you could be a criminal. Today, his theories are really kind of poo-pooed um, because they did not take into account environmental factors, trauma, or even things like nutrition that can affect behavior and physical appearance as well as mental health. So to him, if you looked like a criminal, if you had these certain physical features, you were. It's just, just the way it is. Yeah. So Lombroso wrote, he weighed in on the Gunnis case, and he wrote that Gunnis was an example of what he termed a, quote, born woman criminal. These women generally commit fewer crimes than men, but when they are criminal, they are considerably more so than men. It is not enough for a woman to murder an enemy. She wants to make him suffer, and she enjoys his death. <laughs> These women always mix eroticism with crime, which is not what that 2006 article said. No, not at all. And she must have used the attraction of sensuality to obtain her victims. She had exaggerated and perverse sexual instincts and found a strange satisfaction in murdering those close to her. Her maternal instincts were inverted, and Lombroso speculated that it was a pleasure for her to torture her children. There's a lot in there. And we don't need to unpack it all, but there's a lot in there. <laughs> so where does this born woman criminal idea come from? Lombroso argued that woman has many traits in common with a child. Like it, she is vindictive and jealous. Only in ordinary cases, these defects are naturally neutralized by piety, by maternity, by less ardor in the passions, by weakness, and by undeveloped intelligence. Good. That's all women. In some cases, however... There is diseased excitement of the psychic centers which intensifies the bad qualities and seeks a vent in evil. If pity and maternity are absent, if strong passions are also present, the desires derived from an intense eroticism and sufficiently developed muscular force and a superior intelligence for doing evil and carrying it out are present. Such people are born woman criminals. So when women aren't traditionally feminine enough, combined with some disease of the brain... They're, they're criminals. This is, there's a lot here. And this is why I struggled with this episode. <laughs> yeah. It, it's, it, it's, and, and the thing is, yes, this is, this is phrenology. This is no criminologist would adhere to these ideas now. But like you said, in the way the, especially pop culture treats female serial killers, it's, it seems to be so much more sensationalized than than male serial killers. Well, there's so much more evil or something because there's this idea of how women are supposed to act mm -hmm. and what women are supposed to be. And so when a woman isn't that, it's like she's a witch. Let's burn her, you know? Um, yeah. and, and even if she's like truly committed these horrible crimes, like it's just like, well, this is so weird and strange and how could she do this and blah, blah, blah. Whereas I feel like in those cases, if a man did it, it'd be like, wow, what a sicko. Yeah. What a sicko. Well, and that was, that'd be it. And, and almost, almost the expectation is like, well, you know, most men are probably serial killers if they get a chance, but, but women, <laughs> no, they're not like that. Women are, are good and pure and kind. And unless something is really, really wrong with them. And it just falls in line so much with the way that the expectations of femininity, femininity and womanhood are supposed to play out throughout history. You know, I mean, if a woman was successful and living on her own and ran a business in Salem, Massachusetts in 1692, she was going to be accused of witchcraft. Right. So, you know, if a woman wasn't going to church every Sunday, probably a witch. If she knew how to garden, definitely a witch. <laughs> um, right. You know, yeah. and it's just so easy to lob these accusations. And so even though Belle was not a good person, well, she committed crimes. I have some issues too with this just like not a good person thing because, you know, I mean, it seems like there's a lot of different things at work here, whether it be you know, expectations of an immigrant, you know, she gets wrapped up in this idea of perhaps a woman, an immigrant woman trying to obtain some kind of status and power and money because that's how she's what she sees as successful. And she grew up without these things. And so that all warps her. And 
she wants to have a family, but something isn't quite, <laughs> you know, jiving yeah. right there. There's a lot going on. And so probably she just needed psychiatric help. Of course, not the psychiatric help women were given. Anyone no. was given at the no. turn of the century. No. But might have made things worse. Yeah. I mean, it just it for some reason this one almost I don't know. I don't want to say it breaks my heart, but like the girl just needed some help. <laughs> she, she she did. I mean, we, we can't, you know, ignore the fact that she killed a whole lot of people. I, I mean, right, that, that's, right. And that's, you know, again, that's, like I said, that's part of my struggle with this yeah, one. It's, it's, it's difficult because, I mean, we, we don't know. We, we have, we do not have her side of the story. And, no. and I'm not saying that would exonerate her from her crimes, but it might give us some insight into into what motivated her and and one of the things is is the the stuff about you know women are so much more 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 violent and evil in the crimes they commit and a lot of stories would point to like well the way she dismembered the bodies and and things like that pointing that pointed to like excessive cruelty it's just the practical matter of disposing a body yeah. when you have a limited amount of space well and i read and, something that they thought that she was probably feeding some of some of it to her pigs you know i mean yeah. pigs can eat a body fast so, yeah. and they eat it all so you know if she's chopping it apart and you know it's just smart murdering i mean yeah. i mean not not to be facetious but no. it, it's not, it doesn't mean she's like completely you know sadistic mor- morally inverted somehow right. um it, it's just she she was smart um right. and and it, it's what's funny about the, the phrenology thing especially like at the last minute tonight i found this little quotation from this phrenology thing and they examined her skull and you know what 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 her skull told them that she had a desire for food and drink, a desire for possession Which skull of money or property. Which did prop- they analyze? Uh, um, Esther's? Th- they, they, no, no um, Bell's. They looked at her head, like pictures, like oh, photographs oh, oh, of okay, her. Oh, okay, okay. Like photographs of her. She, she had a desire for food and drink, a desire for possession of money or property. She was secretive and concealed things. She was destructive, um, and, and she had an instinct for killing or destroying. They said, all of these are remarkably well-developed in this woman's head. And so basically, <laughs> all they have to do is listen to what other people said about her mm-hmm. and said, oh, we can see all those things in the shape mm-hmm. of her head, you know, from from the pictures. And you had asked me in a text message when we had previously talked about phrenology. And I, I just now remembered that we also talked about it during the Whitechapel Club episode because they oh, had right. all yes. of those skulls. I knew right. there was yeah. more than Rattle yeah. Run. I know I felt like it came up and was mentioned in the Rattle Run case um, somehow. And maybe that's actually wrong. Um, and I just sort of transposed things there. But um, it, we talked about it in the Whitechapel Club. Because they had, they had the skulls. They had a, you know, a phrenologist. The criminal was, skulls. And yeah. they donated it to some medical school or something. I know part of it is is looking back 100 years later. And we're so much more advanced now. But phrenology just is so dumb. Oh, phrenology I, I mean, it, it, It's so. It was a pseudoscience at the time. <laughs> And so the final point that I wanted to address sort of in this same vein here, um, Belle is often referred to as a female bluebeard. And um, bluebeard, it's, it's an old um, French folktale about this wealthy man who repeatedly marries and murders the women that he marries. And I just feel like this is a very sort of unfair and unequal comparison. Of course, this is an old folktale from long, long ago. And uh, so, so it's hard to say exactly, you know, they have some ideas of the roots of this story and, and tale things that actually happened at the time that could have inspired it. But as we've already kind of talked about, you know, there are a lot of different things going on with Belle probably. Um, and so to just sort of say that she, that she's the same as Bluebeard. She's the same as a wealthy man who, for funsies, decides to go around marrying women and then murdering them. Um, just, <laughs> I, I, I don't, I don't think. I think that that takes out, you know, any consideration of any trauma she could have had from her childhood. If the story of her being pregnant and then beat up and miscarrying that, has anything, yeah. If that's I mean, at growing all up true. poor potentially being made fun of for being so poor. There's just this complex system of pushes and pulls that could have been playing on her mind and emotions. And so, you know, likening her to this tale, I I think, again, just takes away the humanity of what was going on. And I I don't like it. (laughs) No. And um, 
No, I, I don't. And the, the story of her getting pregnant and then being beaten and losing the baby, I mean, the, the way that it's, it's one of those stories, again, like we said, it's after the fact. It's There's no documentation of this. But and, and the way it's told is like, well, he she might have murdered the guy. It's like, well, let's think about what this would have done to her. I mean, my dad would have murdered that guy. So. Well, I think <laughs> I think most fathers, older brothers, <laughs> friends who had access to a cudgel of some kind right. would have committed murder. Uh, I certainly would have. But um, it, it, her her love of children her desire yes. to care for children um her her disdain for men i'm not gonna say hatred of men but di- men men were something to be used men yes were, i was gonna say they were uh, tools they were tools they were u- u- utilitarian um I, I you could trace it back to that mm-hmm. to that story and um and the thing is that wasn't why the story was told the story was told is like a, like oh she she killed this kid too it's like no well you know, let let you know and so especially if the story but... was being told to highlight <laughs> some other bad aspect it's kind of like so wait is that <laughs> like, it like, makes the other part feel more credible because that's right, not right yep that i mean exactly. if anything that would have been something to be like well, you know, this bad thing had happened to her. I wonder if that if someone had brought that up and be like, oh, okay, but bringing it up for the reason that they did almost gives it more credibility. If yeah, that makes sense, what I'm trying it to does. say, it does. It it absolutely it absolutely makes sense. Um, and 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 so the more I, because that story comes at the beginning of of uh, Schechter's book, and mm. um, which never mind, but um, it comes <laughs> to the beginning, which. I need things in order, man. If they didn't say this till like 1920, don't tell it to me during her childhood, right? Because it, it just confuses. I'm, I'm, I'm not smart. I'm not like most of you guys out there. I'm not smart. Um, so, yeah, it, it's 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 told definitely as a way to, um, to make her look worse. But I think it it, it provides some insight mm-hmm. if true. Um, but it, it's it's a fascinating story. I. There's books out there, and but I'd I'd never heard of this before. I started looking around for some crime in the Great Lakes region. Yeah, I mean, I know about like super big, famous like murder stuff, but I don't know about all of these smaller town ones. I mean, if you Mm -hmm. Google her, I mean, she shows up on like all of these different lists of like female serial killers, and you know all these other you know female murderers and things like that. But I am also not the type of person that just Google's that for fun and entertainment. Right. So, yeah, yeah. I, I think it should be more well known, and, and hopefully, we've done a decent job of of highlighting it here. And, and well known uh, in the right ways, not right thrillist list of <laughs> right the, the top five female serial killers of right you know the Midwest or something like that. But um, I, I do recommend Schechter's book. It's um, incredibly thorough. If you're only going to read one book about Bell Gunnis, make it that one because I've read a couple, <laughs> and it's the most recent. Yeah. So it is. It is. uh, All right. Well, do you have anything else? No, I don't think so. All right. I don't either. Thanks for listening. The Bell Gunness Murders was written and produced by Samantha Engel and Aaron Gullius. Our music is by Raphael Crooks. Great Lakes Lore is a Chizo Media production. Chizo Media, our heart is with the people. Until next time, don't get lost in the lore. 